continue our series this morning in the OT, and it actually is the second part uh, of a series uh, of a sermon I started last week. You're going to be a little confused today if you didn't listen to last week, so I'm going to encourage you to go do that. But uh, really, it could be the second part of a long series out of Genesis chapter 2. But that's where we're going to be this morning. Genesis chapter 2. And basically what I would say here is, last, last week we talked about the psychology of the fall. What happened? How, do we, how does that unfold in, in the relationship between Eve and the servant, the Eve and Adam and Eve and God? How does that unfold? And we talked about the fact that, hey, we see it unfolding every day in our lives. When we look at those traits, I believe we see that unfolding day in, day out, in our own lives, let alone with people we interact with. Today we're going to talk a little <clears throat> for a few minutes about what was lost at the fall. Now again, this could be, we could be here for months, Actually, I said a series on just what this could be, but I hope what I'm going to share with you will be of, little, of, of some help and a little less than, you know, days and days of list of things that we lost at the fall. See, most people, if they found out someone was stealing from them, would go to great lengths to stop the stealing. If that someone was stealing from someone you loved, stealing from your children, you would even be more incensed that they're stealing from a child. They're stealing from my wife. They're stealing from my family. They're stealing from my parents. They're stealing from our country. But Jesus says in John 10, 10, that the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that may have life and have it to the full. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Think about that. If that's true, we need to know what that looks like. We need to know what was stolen from us. What was the great swindle that happened at the fall? Read Genesis 2, 25, and then 1 through 13. If you have it on your tablet, it'll be up on the screen. If not, or your Bible, any of those ways will work. But listen, Adam and his wife were both naked. <laughs> and they felt no shame. Don't miss that. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild anim animals. And the Lord, the, the Lord God may, had made, he said to the woman, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the, fruit, uh, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit, uh, the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and even. When the, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord said, Lord called out to the man, Where are you? Which has been being asked throughout the ages. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. You guys say it right. It doesn't. It doesn't. That's, the, that's the Greek translation, or Hebrew translation. Okay. <laughs> naked. That's the, actually, it's the South Arkansas translation, just so you know. And he said, who told you you were naked? That's a profound question. Who told you you were without shame? Who told you you had shame? Excuse me. Because you before were without shame. Who, who told you? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. John Eldridge says in his book, Walking, Walking, uh, the Walking Dead, walking, Waking the Dead, excuse me, not Walking Dead, that's a, that's a, that's a Walking Dead, Waking the Dead, pardon. Before Jesus promised us life, he warned that a thief would try to steal, kill, and destroy. How come then we don't think that the thief then actually steals, kills, and destroys? You won't understand your life. You won't see clearly what has happened to you or how to live forward from here unless you see it as a battle, a war against your heart. Satan's great swindle. So what was lost? Well, the first thing I would say to you, the first thing is, was lost is the true nature of freedom. See, Satan portrayed rebellion as clever or even innocent. The serpent convinced Eve that by rejecting God's boundaries, that somehow, some way, it would increase freedom. But the reality is this. Questioning God's reliability, questioning God's intention, questioning God's authority, not only does not expand life, it contracts it. And it ultimately tells us, let's choose short-term gains for long-term losses. I see people, I mean, you see it on the news, you see it everywhere, you see it in your, maybe you even see it in your home right now. We see it where we wear rebellion almost as a badge of honor.
Those who know me know that I am all for, I actually encourage people thinking outside the box. I think we serve, and I'll mention here in a little bit, we serve a limitless God. Okay, so I encourage thinking outside the box. But let me tell you, I believe there's a huge difference between thinking outside the box. I'm going to move this just for a second. Okay, just that I may break into a song if I keep walking by there. No, <laughs> I, 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 there's a huge difference between thinking outside the box and being rebellious. Jesus was outside the box. But man alive, he wasn't rebellious. He was doing God's will. Here's the difference, if this will just help you. Thinking outside the box is about others. How can I move all of us forward? Rebellion is about me. So if you want to look at it real close, if you want to try to decide real quick when somebody's going, oh, they're just outside the box, just ask yourself a question. Maybe two questions. (laughs) Is it for the good of others? Or is it for them? See, most of us want freedom. But most of us don't want responsibility. Most of us won't want freedom. We just don't want the consequences of our actions. I used to tell my kids, you can choose your choices. You just can't choose your consequences. Yeah, I got one amen here. Should have got one from Colby. Should have got one from right back there, too. I don't know where he is. You can choose your choices. What you have no control over is the consequences of those choices. Do you want freedom? Just in a practical sense, teenagers? Just say this to teenagers. I love teenagers. You know I do. If you want more freedom, be accountable for your actions. Do what you ask. You get a lot more freedom. Adults, be responsible for your work. Quit making excuses. Quit making excuses. Be responsible for the position you've been put in as a parent, as a husband or a wife. Be responsible. Quit making excuses. Quit making the excuses. It's just the way I am. That's the problem most of the time. It is just the way you are. But Jesus loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. True freedom. The ability to know what you should do. The desire to want to do it. And the faith and power to live it out. The ability to know what you should do. And then sometimes a challenge. What should I do? Then the desire... And sometimes you just have to trust and do it. Sometimes the desire didn't even come first. But isn't this great? The faith and power to live it out. (sighs) Another one. 
What was lost? The glory of God. Scripture tells us, 1 Corinthians tells us, that humankind is the glory of God. That God was supposed to be recognized in humans. Why? So humans could actually, accurately represent, represent, represent God. When creation looked at Adam, they were supposed to see God. And they did. That is until Adam sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. They did. Adam was so comparable or similar to God. So much so that you could imagine the animals walking through the garden going, if they had hands, okay, <laughs> going, oh, that's, that's just Adam. I thought it was God. You've heard me share this story before, but I'll share it again. I heard it from Brother Paul Holderfield 30 years ago about a dad raising his kids in his home. Obviously in his home, but raising his kids. And he would tell his kids when they were younger, he just would say, Dad, I get... He said, I hope... He said, I hope for you guys, you get me and Jesus confused sometimes. Not in the deity sense, just in life and fragrance and aroma of the person's, of the dad's life. Over a series of years, he quit saying it to his kids. His son, this is back in the 60s, his son grew up when, and he was headed off to, I think, the Vietnam War. He was headed off and they were on the tarmac saying goodbye to him. And the dad came down. I mean, the son came back to his dad and said to him, looked him right in the eye and said, Dad, I just want you to know, I still get you and Jesus confused sometimes. And that was the last words he ever shared. And they ever shared together. To represent Jesus. To represent God. What an unbelievable calling. We are ambassadors. Of the most high. I mean, let that rest on you a second. I don't know what company you represent, and God bless you, and I hope you're doing great with that, but you ain't never going to work for a company big enough that has that. I love what 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 18 says. Even to think this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, our being, our being, our being, transformed into his image with ever increasing what? Glory. Glory. Which comes from the Lord, which is the Spirit, who is the Spirit. I love Jesus says, you are the light of the world. 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our lives and God's glory are directly tied together. And how is it best seen in us? I think if you go back and listen to last week, I think it's best seen in sacrificial love. When the fruits of the Spirit are being lived out in us and it manifests itself in sacrificial love. Because that's the best way, Jesus. When you want to look at Jesus, just look at the cross. And you want to know how much he loves you. Another thing that was lost is freedom from shame and condemnation. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. But I'll tell you what the thief wants to do. He wants to heap shame and condemnation on us. Shame is not feeling bad about what we did. Shame is about feeling bad about who we are. Condemnation. Shame leads to condemnation, which allows you to, which basically shows you the problem and continually points out what a failure you are. Anybody sitting in here today that is being repeated in your mind how much of a failure you are? The thief wants us to sit on that. He wants us to sit on what we did wrong or what was done to us. And let it build up. And he wants us to make it. Make, become, we become that. That's our identity. He wants it, that to be how we're known in our own minds. And maybe by others too. But especially in our own minds. Shout your past. Your sins. And as we read in scripture earlier. Shame does what? It causes us to hide. If we're not careful from God. Guess what? The first time you confess your sin to God is not the first time he knew about it. Think about it. <laughs> okay? What are you hiding? The greatest gift, and you're going to think I'm crazy, one of the greatest gift, gifts God has given us is the power of Holy Spirit to make us feel guilty. You go, oh, guilty. Oh, I don't want to feel guilty. Well, guilty leads us to conviction. Guilt is a good thing. Guilt is a gift. Guilt is the way out. Guilt is a part of the road. It's the entrance to the way out. And the pathway there is, the gate is guilt. The pathway is what? Conviction, which ultimately leads us to the answer, which is forgiveness, repentance, forgiveness, and Jesus See, many of us want to run from guilt, but we're running from, we're away from the gate that opens us up to freedom. Isn't that crazy? We run from it. It makes no sense. But we do. Because it causes us to what? Hide. See, godly conviction leads us to godly sorrow, which leads us to repentance. Another part of this hiding or this, this loss here is self-consciousness. The fear of our, what others will think. 
And by that, it limits boldness and it limits courage. I'm afraid someone, because I want to be bold on this, and we define boldness here as either speaking or living the truth for the good of others, even at personal risk. Speaking or living the truth for the good of others, even at personal risk, boldness. Not bluntness. That's not a gift of the Spirit. (laughs) That's just who I am. Again, that's part of the problem. (laughs) Courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the absence of self. You know, we're self-conscious. You're just going to do the right thing because it's for the good of others. Yeah, I may have fear just flying all over me, but I'll tell you what, I'm doing it for the good of others. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the absence of self. Dads, I'm going to tell you, some of you need to be living with some courage. I don't know who it is. I'm not pointing anybody out. I think about the garden. It was basically a small nudist colony. (laughs) And there was no shame. And note to you, I'm not promoting nudist colonies since the fall. That's not what I'm saying. But before the fall, there were no inhibitions. But the moment the first couple sinned, they became self-conscious. It's part of the curse. You hear me? It's part of the curse. Define inhibit or inhibitions. To be made self-conscious and unable to act in a relaxed and natural way. Let's take worship. If you think about it, worship is something that seems pretty foolish, isn't it? Singing to someone you can't see. Raising your hands to someone you can't touch. Foolishness. Crazy people. Or maybe they're hearing something you don't. Just maybe. Some of you see people, at least in your mind, getting a little carried away in worship. And I do agree, and I've watched it over the years, I do believe there are times where people are 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 seeking attention for themselves in public worship. I do believe that. But I love what Scripture says. Don't be drunk with wine. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill you and control you. See, I believe that one reason we see in our culture today so many people drinking alcohol to a buzz level, I believe... Because they're acting on something that was in the garden. They know within themselves they shouldn't have to live with inhibitions. So alcohol allows them to move past that. It's within you. God gave it to you. You're trying to substitute for the real deal. 
You're substituting. We are supposed to live in a natural state of being relaxed. And I mean that in the sense that we know God is God at all. We're secure in who we are. There's no question there are ditches on both sides when it comes to worship. But what if worship is part of taking back what was lost in the garden? We need to introduce some intoxication into the world. And it's called being filled with the Spirit. Look at those guys. They're drunk at whatever time of day. And what is people? Oh, no, no, they're not drunk. They're just filled with the Spirit. Not spirits. They're filled with the Spirit. What's wrong with those mad people? What's wrong with those intoxicated people? They're filled with the Spirit. What are they doing worshiping and running around and raising their hands? Man, I am a closet charismatic in my office. Not in here. I believe there's order and I believe there's some things. But I'll tell you what. Some of you need to break part of the curse. What if part of breaking the curse and taking back what the curse stole is how free you are to sing and to worship an almighty God who did everything for you? I cannot imagine. Shouldn't have had that fourth cup of coffee. (laughs) I cannot imagine. Just kidding. What God has done for me I mean, not trying to figure out some way to express it the best I know how. Because I'll tell you what, I've seen me and Colton, especially in Allie, lose all of our inhibitions over a football game. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. If I can do it there, surely I can do it for the one who saved my life and gave me purpose and gave me direction. Surely. Surely. Lost. This is a real short one. Somebody just need to hear. I just I started to take it out, but I thought I'm just going to put it in, leave it in here. We were created by a limitless God. We were created by a God with limitless, limitless dreams, imaginations, and hopes with unlimited resources. In the garden, there was only one no, and everything else was a yes. What happens to many of us is over time we become small people with a small God. It's part of the curse. It's part of what was stolen. It's part of the great swindle. I say Satan still, I want to go do I feel like God is leading me. I feel like then you hear that. Did he really? Oh, even if he did, he doesn't have the resources to. Lost. Godly reason is the filter. Godly reason is the filter. Before the fall, Adam and Eve didn't have a tendency towards sin. Their reason controlled their decision-making. What reason meant is knowledge of God and what God had said and who God was. They were like well old machines. Boom, they make it, boom, boom, because they're in such relationship with God. It was like a, just like, a, like I said, a well-oiled machine. It just, 
ever. We just read earlier. The thief appealed to reason first. Now think about this. I don't know if you've ever read it this way. The thief appealed to reason first. Questions your knowledge of God and how that all works out and questions your reasoning about all this. He questioned that us before he even presented. It says then, Eve then recognized once that was flipped and then all of a sudden reason, she had convinced herself, it's, I'm open to this question. Now all of a sudden it was appealing to the eye and good for taste. I don't know hardly any sins that you're going to commit or I'm going to commit. If we didn't think about it, we'd go, you know, I probably shouldn't do that. That somewhere along the way, I convinced myself that stealing on this situation is okay. I've convinced myself that what is bad is good. Somehow or another, I've, I've flipped it. Because that's part of the curse. Because see, before the fall... We would have automatically lined up with what God was saying. What, like I said last week, what Eve should have said was, God said it, end of conversation. Because of how I know God and he loves me and I know what he told me, I trust his authority and his intention, end of conversation. Now desires derive decisions. The result? Just look around our world. Some of the scariest words I've ever heard as a pastor, and even since then, is, well, I just feel, pastor. I know what God's word says, but I just feel. problem is most of us don't get up every day with the desire to do what's righteous. We get up on a happiness quest. We want to live happy. And because of that, happiness often trumps our desire and appreciation of what's true and what's right and what's noble. But I want to let you know, Scripture never, ever says follow your heart. Never. Ever. Matter of fact, Jeremiah says, your heart is deceitful. That's what it says. That's what it says. It's deceitful. Your heart is deceitful. And the heart is your will, your decision making. Your heart is deceitful. Romans 2 says that God gave us a conscience. That we are all born with a conscience. But let's step back a second on reason. What about consciousness? In other words, awareness or knowledge. Consciousness. Our consciousness or our awareness or our knowledge goes to our conscience. Okay? Our conscience. Every person's born, if, 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 if everything's there, born with a conscience to help moderate, help, help, help filter out. But let me say this to you. Your conscience is good for a red light, but it's terrible for a green light. Because you and I both know we can manipulate it. That's what happened in the garden. We can take take what we know has been said. We can take all that and still flip it. 
But there's a difference between that and conviction. Godly conviction. Godly conviction is knowledge, knowledge that is settled. You don't waver. I love what 1 Corinthians 10.5 says. Paul's writing says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's a whole lot easier to compromise our knowledge and reason than to act, act against conviction. 1 Thessalonians 1, where we get our mission statement. It talks about the people in Thessalonica became an example. example. Two things they came an example from. This is how it worked in them. That by the power of the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. I think it's 1 Thessalonians 1.5, I think it is. You can look it up. By the power of the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Not power of the Holy Spirit and deep consciousness. Not power of the Holy Spirit and deep knowledge. Not power of the Holy Spirit and, no. It's that too, but deep conviction. And they became an example that we still look at today. Man's nature is so created that it will only function properly within the framework of God's reason and knowledge and relationship. And I'm sorry for you. I hate it for you if you've chosen that there's, you think there's a different path. The last one is this. Lost is our story. The thief steals from us when we don't believe we have a story to tell. Oh, you'll never amount to anything. Oh, nobody's ever going to listen to you. Oh, nobody's shame, condemnation is just heaped on you. And you've heard me say this probably 20, 30 times in here, Maria Robinson's statement. I can't go back and write and start a new beginning, but I can start today and write a new ending. I can start from today and write a new ending. I do know that. I may not be able to change, and I still may have consequences of what that was. But one thing I have say so in today is how this book ends. A story of redemption. A story of reconciliation. A story of hope. Your, your story. Even a story of how God can redeem the worst moments in your life for his glory. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm convinced the enemy knows your potential and the potential about your life way better than you do. You need to stop the stealing. 
It's time to start reclaiming ground. It's time to start breaking the curse. Now, we won't ever do it. The enemy's still on the prowl. We know that. The Word tells us to be self-controlled and alert because the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. But what I love about that passage of Scripture, it just says, like a roaring lion, his teeth have been removed. His claws have been clipped. By the name of Je- his name is Jesus, the Lion of Judah. That's the real lion. I know some of you are afraid. You're just afraid. If I really turn my life over fully to God, what will he do with me? Because I've told you this before. For me at 27 years old when I gave my life to Christ, that was the only Kurt Gentry I knew up to that point. I didn't know any other Kurt Gentry. But oh my goodness, am I glad I stepped across that line. Because being transformed by Christ is not to lose who you are. It's to begin, to begin to not only recover and recognize, but fully live into what you were designed to be. True freedom. The ability to know what you should do. The ability to know what you should do. The ability to know what you should do. And here comes the kicker, right? The desire to want to do it. Or just believe you can live better without God's boundaries. Oh, you'll live with some of them because that kind of keeps everybody else in check. I'm glad there are some other boundaries because it keeps everybody else not bothering me. But I don't want all of those. And what you've looked at is that those are God's boundaries and really reality is it's God's playing field. That you can just go for it. In the garden, there was only one no. Everything else was a yes. And what you're worried about is if you gave your life to Christ or surrendered your life fully to Christ, that everything's a no and maybe there is one yes. And it's just the opposite. Do what he says. That's the one thing to do. Are you going to quit the stealing? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to ask the band to come down as we close this morning. They were in the garden, were naked and without shame. And we all know, I say we all know, but we understand from Scripture, we won't be fully restored by no means till we get to heaven, till we see Jesus face to face. But it is being restored now. You hear us say here often at Renovation, we are transformed and are being transformed. The Word says into His likeness, into His glory. In his glory. To what? To represent him to a world that so desperately needs that. Not some of the versions we get of Christianity. That. God's glory. His sacrificial love. That's what they need to see. Would you stand with me? I'm going to close with a song.
And uh, just want to open the altars up. If you're here for the first time or you haven't been here much, we've done this. Part of our tradition of 120 years of, of being connected to the Church of the Nazarene has been altars. And I'm just thankful we haven't taken them out. Because they're a place to come. A place to surrender. A place to, place to publicly, publicly, without inhibitions, <laughs> to come and just say, I don't care who, who else sees me. I'm just coming to lay it all down, Lord. Do with me as you will. But if you'll show me, I'm not going to hold anything else back. For some of you today, you need to come like I shared with you before, like I did at 27. It's just I walked out. I didn't care what anybody else thought at that moment. I did not care. And I had so much up till then. Because I knew what God was saying to me. I knew it. The conviction is the path. It's not the restriction. It's the pathway to Jesus. To the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. So as they sing, just going to invite you, if you feel led, feel, I'd hate to even say that, okay? <laughs> After what I said earlier. But you believe God is leading you this morning to come to publicly gather around these altars for whatever reason for his honor and your betterment <laughs> thank you Lord for this time we pray this in your name Jesus amen you come if you feel that God bless you